Almighty God, creator of all that is and was and ever will be, we have gathered here to worship you because we are compelled to worship you because of your glory and might and majesty. Were we willing to experience your presence, we would be so overwhelmed we would be on our faces before you. Like Moses, who you called your friend, we would be barely able to bear the image of your back as you walked past and held us in the cleft of the rock to save us from a glory we could not stand. And yet, Lord, in your beautiful plan, you you created a place where your special creation could dwell with you. You created Eden so that you could be with us on earth, with your people. And yet through Satan's temptation and sin's irresistible call, they left you in the garden and gave up experiencing your presence. And so through Moses, you introduced again this tabernacle, this place where you could dwell on earth and be with us so that we might experience your presence and you dwell with us here. Through David, through Solomon, you created a temple where you could dwell with us and it was bigger and it was more space to be with us. You separated the holy people and through their sacrifices and offerings, you made yourself a place among a people to dwell here on earth with us. And then through Jesus, you did dwell among us, being one of us, spreading your reach even further. And then on Pentecost, Lord, you... You dwelled among us by sending tongues of fire like the flames of the sacrificial offerings so that each person who would be born again and receive your Holy Spirit would be a place for you to dwell with us and in us on earth. And so we long for the day, Lord, when you walk among us in the cool of the evening, having a quiet chat with us like you once did with Adam and Eve. We long for a day when you reign on earth And this is what we recreate when we worship you, when we create sanctuaries and sacred spaces, Lord. And so we ask that you sanctify this space with your presence today, that you would dwell with us. Let us not be so focused on getting to be with you in heaven when we die, but rather to be here on earth in your presence as it was always intended to be. Lord, let us not dwell on things to come, but rather on the things that are, and invite you to dwell with us in them. Let us know your presence, Lord, in our homes, in our family troubles, in our financial troubles, in our sick bed, in our hospital room, in our nursing home, in our community. Let us feel your presence and have you dwell among us and speak in and through us 
so that we are your vessels, that we are your garden. We ask this, Lord, because we are, we are frightened by the way the world is turning and the ugliness that is outside the walls of your sanctified spaces. We're frightened by the way that it creeps into the sanctified places and sometimes makes them entirely unholy. And so we ask God, please come and dwell. Dwell and speak your word of healing and restoration, your word of truth in love, your word of transformation and direction. Let us know your presence, we pray, for the name of the one you made all of it possible through, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we, pre- we, we happily and joyfully pray the words that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Let's take a look at the reading and then let's talk about it a little bit. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Now, as I get ready to read this to you, let me just tell you, this is a book you should read and look at it. You could finish it in, oh, 10 minutes. Read this one. It's it's one of the two uh, epistles or letters from Paul that really defines Christian doctrine in so many ways. But this particular phrase is what we're going to focus on. Uh, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 say this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, uh, before I really get going here, I, I, Daniel, you know, that kid's voice has changed a lot since I first met him. And, and what I heard was, blah, 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 blah. here's what he said, because this passage really covers it. He said, don't throw yourself out there and make it all about you. Don't make yourself the topic. When you're sharing about Jesus, share Jesus. And keep your information about yourself to yourself. Now, he was saying it in a very reasonable way that my good friend Ron Flowers would approve of, which is don't give strangers a lot of information that they might use to harm you in some way. And that's a very good piece of advice. But he was also saying something that's really important for us to remember, which is that it's not about us. That we're not trying to share ourselves or, or what an awesome person I am because I know Jesus, you know. We want to tell people how awesome Jesus is. We want to express our love for Jesus. And uh, so good advice all the way around. Thank you to the young people and to Terry. So this series is about obtaining 2020 Christian vision. And first thing I want to ask you is, is if, if you're like me, now if you wear contact lenses or glasses and you can't see without them, raise your hand, would you? Look around the room. I need to get in the lens grinding business. 
Um, yeah, thank you everybody. So see how many of us really can't see clearly without adjusted corrective lenses? This is the same way that this series is approaching our vision in the Christian doctrinal sense of things. Our Christian vision, which is informed by Judeo-Christian and biblical tradition and teaching, is only clear when we put on corrective lenses. We need corrective lenses to see things the way they are, to see things clearly. And that's what this series is about. And that means that it's hit some hard stuff over the last few weeks, and it's not going to get any easier today. But the whole point is that, like our vision affects so many other parts of our lives, so this Christian vision issue affects our lives. So I guess what I'm saying is, is if, they all, if all this seems a little harsh, keep in mind that it's harsh when you go to the DMV and find out that you can't get a driver's license without your corrective lenses. If it's harsh, it's like going to the eye doctor and finding out that you can't read the lines you used to be able to read on the chart and you're going to have to have corrective lenses. So as your spiritual practitioner, one of the things that I'm here to do is to help you enhance your spiritual health. And I'm telling you, you need corrective lenses in order to have a full, clear Christian vision. It's interesting to note that this has been an issue for as long as the church has existed. One of my favorite theologians, A.W. Tozer, said, May not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children in a marketplace, chattering about everything but pausing to learn the value of nothing. In other words, when we're not looking at church, for example, or our relationship with the kingdom of Christ with clear 2020 Christian vision, we're passing all kinds of things that are important. We're ignoring the scenery along the way to where we think we're going. We're missing what it really, what's really there. There's a whole lot going on in the life of a church like Shiloh, but more importantly in the church universal, which is people, not buildings, that you will miss if you're skipping through chattering away and not paying attention. And so to put it in another, another way that's perhaps a little harsher, it means that if you're coming to church for social exercise, then you're missing the kingdom entirely. If you come to church to be served, you're missing the kingdom entirely. If you come to church in order to get what you think you deserve from the church, then you're missing the kingdom because the church is not Walmart. It's not your favorite restaurant. It's not a movie theater. It's not the theater where entertainers prepare all week in order to present you with something that will make you feel good. And so the whole point in this 2020 Christian vision is to understand the stark and difficult to swallow reality that none of this is about you. I told you this is gonna be hard. I'm convinced that times are going to get tougher for Christians, especially the real card-carrying, spirit-led, born-again believers, and it's time to toughen up a little bit, get ready for tough times. Here's what I mean. There's a historian who said that the average age of the world's great civilization is a duration of about 200 years each. Almost without exception, the civilization passed through the same sequence. 
from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from great courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to leisure, from leisure to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence to weakness, from weakness back to bondage. Civilizations run a course that's cyclical. And if you're a student of history, you've seen this over and over and over again. Great civilizations that once dominated the world are now stories in a history book and you can go visit the ruins of their civilization, but they're gone. And they follow this pattern consistently. The author of the quote says, it makes sense, doesn't it? It starts and stops at bondage. Why? Because it's rotating on an axis of depravity. And depravity, this, in this case, is, is basically completely devoted to your self-interest. You're depraved when the only thing you care about is you and getting what you want and satisfying your desires, making your flesh happy by feeding it whatever it hungers or desires. And so when a society gets to the point where there's not enough work to do and everybody's just working on entertaining themselves, then a society goes down that road. And that's the whole point here. And this is an important time in the life of civilization as we know it to recognize that this pattern is repeating itself yet again. Church and society right now are rapidly approaching decline based on depravity. And we have to recognize it. Now to put it in perspective, and I thought of this after I'd written my notes uh, with the help of my daughter who was telling me about this book she was reading about these Russian women who during World War II were responsible for moving military aircraft from one location to another so that the men could use those aircraft to fight the war. And uh, that way they were you know, constantly moving new equipment where it was needed. And these women, she thought, were pretty remarkable, and I agree, because they're very courageous and very skilled pilots, but they're courageous because they're, remember in World War II, Russian uh, soil was occupied by the enemy, the German army, the Nazi army, was occupying their territory, which meant that they were trying to move these aircraft in enemy territory, and in order to try to protect themselves from being attacked by the Nazis, they would fly in the dark of the night. Now, uh, some of you are going to really love this part, see, because they would fly these airplanes into fields that were not lit. And they were usually just grass fields. And so they would light lanterns just momentarily so that the pilot could get oriented and then it would go completely dark again. And using nothing but instincts, courage, and instruments, they would land these airplanes on pitch black fields. And sometimes they died because that is a very dangerous way to land an airplane. Now you've flown in the commercial airliner or something, then you know when you approach an airport, there are lights everywhere. It's hard to miss. But the point of the story is, is why would they do such a thing? Why would they have taken such incredible risks? Well, because the world was at war in the middle of last century. 
and a war that was going to eventually come to your soil sooner or later, if it wasn't already there, was something worth fighting against. I mean, in other words, people got into these wars because they were trying to drive enemies who were bent on their destruction out of their land. People, people did courageous, unbelievably frightening things because there was no choice. They were fighting for their survival. Americans fought for the preservation of their way of life. And so think about that pattern I just shared with you where there's this great courage. You know, an author from the last century described the people who fought World War II as the greatest generation in American history. And I tend to agree. They did what was necessary. I was reading a book about dieting the other day and I found out that the records that medical records that talked about nutrition and so forth had to sort of take a break because during the period of World War II almost everybody in America was living on rations and therefore the data that was recorded during the period of World War II didn't run consistently with the data from the times prior to it and after it. In other words, even the people at home were making tremendous sacrifices in order to win the war because everything was at stake. So my point in bringing that up to you is, is that, that we who are the church, the body of Christ, that means the born-again, spirit-filled believers to whom this author was writing in our passage from Colossians. Those letters in the New Testament are written to churches. And the authors are operating under the assumption that whomever is reading those letters is a born-again, spirit-filled believer. Meaning a new creation in Christ, a son or daughter of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so the presumption in the letter is, is that if you're dealing with the world, you're not dealing with born-again believers. You're not dealing with Christians. And what that means is, is that... that the direction we're being given about entering into conversations and interactions with the world is that we would approach it with wisdom. Well, wisdom is basically information power combined with experience. In other words, I may have equal knowledge or less knowledge than some of you 16 or 17 year olds in the room, but what I have that you don't have is a lot of experience. So information is only part of wisdom. Experience counts for a lot. And so when we talk about entering into relationships with outsiders, we need to first enter them with wisdom. So Daniel's right. And here's, here's a perfect example. He is well informed as a young person that it's not good to give strangers too much information about yourself because there's a personal risk to your safety involved. But then the old guy gets up here with his gray beard and bald head and says, but don't forget, it's also about talking about Jesus and not you anyway. So there's a combination of information and experience. That's what he means when he says to be wise. I love it in a place where there's no place in the Bible where Jesus says you should go out into the world as wise as a serpent, but as gentle as a dove. And I always imagine a snake trying to find his way through a room full of rocking chairs. You know what I mean? Now there's a snake who's really got to be on it. 
And so when he says be wise as serpents, he means tongues always going, ears and eyes are always tuned in because you have to be alert when you enter the world outside of the family of God. And then when he says that you would approach them by using, making the best use of your time, you know, it means that you have, here's, here's a, a perfect example, I think, of knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge informs me that you should make the best use of your time, which means that, you know, when you're trying to tell people who are not believers about Jesus, you know, uh, you know, hurry up and make your point. That's kind of what it sounds like. But wisdom tells me that it's more about not wasting your time. Now, I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you, but wisdom informs me and experience has taught me that there are people who are not ready to hear what you have to say about Jesus. And you can tell pretty quickly that you are trying to talk to someone who doesn't even understand your language. If we are father, our father's children, if we are sons and daughters of God because of Christ, then we have a new sort of language. We have a new perspective on things. And when we're talking to some people, they can't understand. Sometimes I think when I'm speaking to non-believers, they're reading the subtitles under my body, like you're watching a foreign movie or something, and they're doing okay until I start going too fast for them, and then they can't keep up with the subtitles. They're trying to translate what I'm saying in their own mind. They're trying to take spirit-led thinking and interpret it through the flesh, which is why many saints will declare that their faith came first and then they began to know and they began to articulate understanding. So why is this important at this time? Well, because our world, as we understand it in our uniquely American context, is just getting more and more decadent every day, isn't it? I am going to watch the Super Bowl today, and I don't have any problem with that, but if ever there was a celebration of American decadence, it's the Super Bowl. Watch it, enjoy it, but watch it with your Judeo-Christian biblical lenses on. Watch it with your 2020 Christian vision and see how you interpret it. Talk it over with the people you're watching the game with. You can root for your favorite team. You can talk about the strategies and the skill. And you can talk about all of that because I love football. I love watching that game. And I love good football when I see it. I'm happy that one of my favorite players just got elected to the Hall of Fame. I, all of that's fun for me. But what else could you talk about when you watch those funny commercials that they have? You could talk about how your Christian interpretation of these things differs from the message that's being communicated to flesh, to the world. To interact with the world, we have to be entirely given over to Christ in order to be effectively interacting with the world. And many, many, many Christians go off half-cocked. Now, you all may have heard that phrase, but you young pups, let me tell you what that means. That means that you've got a weapon in your hand and you pull the trigger about halfway and then it just sort of goes pop. And it doesn't do anything. And if you really want it to do what it's supposed to do, you've got to pull the trigger all the way back and then it gets the full motion and it creates what you're trying for. 
Going off half-cocked means you're not invested enough yourself to do anything of any particular good for others. So the most important witness you can bear to the world is your own transformation. Your own spiritual transformation is the most important thing you do for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Don't get excited about Jesus and run out and try to tell everybody why they need Jesus until you really know Jesus. And that's what church is all about. Now, the church with a small c, meaning that we've created these places like Shiloh where you can nurture one another along the way, where you can gain the wisdom and experience of others in a way that transforms your experience of Christ. And it all works together. And as I prayed, there would be Holy Spirit-filled people within various pockets of the life of this church building that we have here so that uh, not only is the church known as Shiloh alive, but more than that, there are all kinds of pockets of Spirit-filled life in it. The apostle says, let your speech always be gracious and yet seasoned with salt. I have dealt with a lot of leadership teams and administrative boards and committees and things in the last 25 years. And what I've learned is that in church, we have to have equal amounts of grace and discipline. And that is exactly what the author of this passage is saying. That you have to be gracious and yet seasoned with salt, you know. That means not using salty language. It means being disciplined as well as gracious. And it means that sometimes people in church mean well, but they're going off half-cocked and someone else has to say, God love you, I admire your, your enthusiasm, but... Discipline suggests that you would be much more effective if you would take a few more hours of Christian education. You would be much more effective if you would walk with someone who has acquired the skills and the graces necessary to do what God has called them to do. It's a model that's right out of Scripture. So what I'm saying is, is that Paul, probably Paul, there's some question of whether this was written by Paul or not, but I think it is him. He's saying grace and discipline go hand in hand. You're not a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you follow the disciplines of Jesus Christ. And then he says that this will be the way to know how you ought to answer any person. Too often we talk first and think second. It's more important to think before we speak. And people sometimes will pin me down because I'm pastor and I'm supposed to know everything. Do you know I've literally had people bring their spouse to a, a uh, counseling session with me. And this has happened years ago, so I don't mind saying that. But I've literally had more than one person come sit down across from me and immediately say, well, what do you got for me? I hear you have all the answers. <laughs> That's really not fun because I don't have all the answers. And one of the things I routinely do as a pastor is I say, you know what, I'm going to have to think on that and get back to you. Better to think before you speak. Better to pray before you speak in order to be effective in whatever God has called you to do. 
The most important thing I want to share with you, especially as we go into the next several months of the life of this church and the denomination and the community and the nation, is one thing a follower of Christ never does is use violence. Now let me just say that I am certain about that, and so I will never ever say anything that would indirectly or directly incite you to violence. Listen to what happened the night that Jesus was arrested. They grabbed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and some of those around him saw that was ha what was happening and said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them even struck one of the servants of the Pharisees and took off his ear. And Jesus put the severed ear back and healed the man and said, No, this is not the way. Violence is not the way to impose God's will on anybody. No believer is going to use violence to impose God's will on others. God will do what only God can do. We are here to live according to God's precepts and to practice our faith in the way that Christ has directed, which involves no physical violence. But let's go one step further. Violence is also found psychologically in our speech. Now, most of you are saying, well, I never had any plans of hitting somebody who wasn't a Christian or who was living in a way that I don't think that Christians should live. I never planned on hitting anybody. But what have you said? What did you post on Facebook or Instagram? Did you carry a sign and protest? Did you speak violently? Because violence is about behavior that leads to other people's pain and suffering. Do you do things or say things that inflict pain on others? Because that's violence. And God abhors violence. Because you know what violence is? Remember, this is one of those things Dan says all the time. God hates oppression. Violence is a form of oppression. God hates oppression. You can't force your will on other people without being crossways with God because God hates oppression. Read your Bible. It's there from page one all the way through to the end. God punishes oppressors. So in the name of Christ, when we interact with the world, we do not represent Christ if we are violent. Do you understand? doesn't mean we roll over and take everything. It doesn't mean we don't stand our ground and declare with confidence and courage that this is where I stand. But it's one thing to declare where you stand. It's another thing to try to force someone else to stand where you stand. So have the courage to declare where you stand, but do not force others to be where you are or to assume that they're wrong if they're not standing as you stand. So walking with Jesus is going to require a great deal of perseverance and humility, and humility, frankly, is harder than perseverance. We all will stick with something that's important to us, but humility, that's something that takes a great deal of effort, because every time we're tempted to think that anything that we do in and around our relationship with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit is about us, we are not being humble. Humility requires you to put God first all the time. Humility says, wait a minute, why am I doing this? And listen, God wants you to have pleasure. God created all that you see for your pleasure because it pleases God to give you all these gifts. But 
Always remember that God is the gift giver, that you didn't make yourself a success. You didn't buy the pleasure. You were gifted with pleasure and peace and amazing prosperity and honor God in those things and don't be tempted to put yourself ahead of God in any way, shape, or form. That's the humility that this requires. It won't really stop the big problems in our society, but if you can reframe them and really make yourself a standout Christian, and I don't mean making a show about yourself being a Christian, but stand out because you're so clearly not wired the way the world has wired you, which you have died to and been born again. See, you've given up your worldliness and become a Christ follower, a member of Christ's household, reprogrammed by the Holy Spirit, and it ought to show. The most powerful witness you can give to the non-believer is your own transformation. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts that we might be changed. Let our lives glorify you more than us so that we can bring others to know your amazing grace. Dwell among us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.